This Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILERS. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on Spike Jones's Her. And I should say, before I get started, thank you to all of you who have been waiting for months for the next spoiler special podcast. Thanks for sticking around. We had a, a hiatus between producers. We had a very overburdened, wonderful audio producer, Chris Wade, who just had too much else going on to do any spoilers toward the end of last year. But we're going to start up in earnest. And the first thing we're going to do is go back and cover some of the big movies from last year that I know people were really curious to hear spoilers about. So today we are starting with Spike Jones's Her, which I suspect is about to be nominated for a bunch of awards and be the subject of conversation for months to come. It's a really, really fun movie to talk about, whatever you think of it um, as a film. And so joining me here in Slate's so joining me here in Slate's New York studio to talk about her is Forrest Wickman, who is Browbeat contributor, Slate writer. Forrest, thanks for coming in. Hey, Dana. And David Hagland, also senior Slate editor and editor of Browbeat. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Dana. So we did not see her together, right? You guys just saw it a while back now. Um, but it seems like we've got a pretty good conversation here. I wanted to get somebody in who didn't love the movie so much. That would be you, David. You're yeah, not I, necessarily playing the role of, you know, the, the, the hater or the devil's advocate or anything, but you're not 100%. Right. I think the first thing I said to Forrest when I came back from, uh, came back to work on Monday having seen the movie was, I did not love it. Mm-hmm. That was my initial reaction. And I think it's, my reaction has become more negative as time has Have passed. you seen yeah. it again since then? No, I'd like to. Mostly to kind of as a gut check, because... I think a lot of my reaction was just that it failed to move me, and maybe on a second viewing it would, although I doubt it. And and Forrest, your general reaction? Uh, I wonder, I was going to say, I wonder if to some extent it's not a coincidence that you were also the last to see it, because I really like this movie. I loved it as sci-fi and have somewhat more mixed feelings about it as a romance. I think it's a very good romance, but not as original as it's been cracked up to be, and so often in re- reading reactions to this movie where it's been called, for example, by David Edelstein, I think the best movie in a decade or, or something to, in that ballpark, uh, I find myself kind of wanting to take it down a peg. Yeah, when, when I hear that kind of hyperbole, or as you said earlier, it's when it's compared to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless yeah, Mind, exactly. which is similar thematically in some ways, but I think overall a more successful and more coherent movie mm-hmm. and a greater movie, um, yeah, then, then I do sort of want to hear it taken down a couple pegs, but at the same time, I just, the experience of seeing this movie to me was intensely pleasurable and very different both times that I saw it. The first time I saw it, I think I experienced it more as a sci-fi vehicle and a movie of ideas. And I remember thinking like, hmm, I'm not tearing up. And I usually cry pretty easily at you know, scenes that the movie wants you to cry in. Second time I saw it, completely opposite reaction, experienced it as a romance and was, you know, incredibly identified and involved. And now, thinking about seeing it again, I'm sure I will feel like a ninny if I have that experience, because by now there's this whole counter discourse of, of, of her haters, which I don't think either of you guys are to this degree, that essentially kind of seem to regard the movie as this sort of wussy, emo, right? Mm-hmm. That, it's, it's, that it's very, um, I don't know how, what you would say, that it's just it's, it's sort of flabby around the edges intellectually. Yeah, there's the a post on uh, the movie club right now by Stephanie Zaharik where she really criticizes the Joaquin Phoenix character along those lines, and to me that's less interesting because I I don't think that's uh, a flaw of the movie. I think his character is, you know, something of a wuss in some ways. That's that's who he is. I don't think there's anything wrong. I don't think the movie is is in endorsing that mode of life exactly. 
um, I think the problems with the movie lie elsewhere. In fact, I mean, as has been pointed out in responses to that line of criticism, the movie is pretty self-aware of of that, of his, of Twombly's sort of problem of, um, there's a quote at some point in the movie where his uh, ex-wife, played by um, Rooney Mara, says something like, you're only with this OS because you could never be with anybody real. And that's something he internalizes and something the movie, I think, is very much about. However, it's still, while it's kind of self-aware of all of these uh, stereotypes of kind of like the mumbly mopey middle-aged white guy and the sort of manic pixie dream girl love interest, it's aware of all of that. Like, so have a lot of that a lot of movies have been very aware of that and critiquing that for kind of for you know a decade or so going back to eternal sunshine which does it too so i was less impressed with that aspect of the movie and felt it just felt sort of familiar to me well so maybe we should just step back a little bit and 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 summarize who theodore twombly is this character that joaquin phoenix plays and and what happens between him and and his os girlfriend i think everybody knows going into this movie that it's a romance essentially between a human and a piece of software right um joaquin phoenix plays theodore twombly this working stiff at an odd company that we'll talk about in a minute in the very near future, right? This takes place in a future that's never quite defined. There's certainly no legend saying what year we're in, and there's not really any visual cue as to, you know, how how technologically advanced the world is. It sort of looks like our world now with these slight, you know, interesting design differences. Um, The job that Joaquin Phoenix's character has is thematically significant to the movie, I would say. He's a uh, a surrogate letter writer, essentially, right? Beautifulhandwrittenletters.com. Beautifulhandwrittenletters.com, which is established in the in the first scene, very very funnily, I think, as 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 a place where you outsource your love letters, right, or your the meaningful correspondence that you keep up with your loved ones. And so we see him at first dictating this letter that seems to be his own heartfelt love letter that you then realize he's he's uh, composing for someone else. Um, then there's a little bit of brief setup about his loneliness and alienation, right? He goes home from work. Uh, he he has a he has phone sex with um with somebody on a kind of internet style service through an earpiece in his ear. He plays with a video game. You see that he's kind of a lonely, alienated guy. But very early in the movie, I think as he's walking out of the office again, he sees this this ad on kind of a public TV terminal for this brand new OS that will be the first OS that has a consciousness. He buys one and takes it home. We actually don't see him buying it ever, right? We just see mm-hmm. him walking in the door with the package, which I think is significant too, that absence of commerce, you know, the absence of visible commerce from the transaction. Pops it into his computer, and lo and behold, it's the voice of Scarlett Johansson talking to him out of the computer in a perfectly natural, sort of seemingly interactive way. And then when he brings it home, he's very quickly charmed by her. As soon as you hear her voice, it's Scarlett Johansson's voice. It's, it's inviting. It's sexy. And she's funny very quickly. She gives herself a name, Samantha. And he increasingly spends all of his time with, with her, with his phone, talking with her. And then she starts to learn things, and, and her consciousness expands and grows very quickly until finally he just tells people that he has this girlfriend and she's an OS. And in one of the, I thought, wittier moments of the movie, um, that's t- that's completely accepted by everyone he tells. I mean, nobody is shocked at all. They they th- oh that oh that's nice. And they know other people who are having relationships with OS. Although statistically, it's not very common. He says at one point. So um, so their relationship uh, deepens, and then it starts to f- to fracture for a couple of different reasons. And this is where we get into the romance versus sci-fi. Because I think the first reason it fractures is because he becomes distant which seems to be a pattern with him. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong. But then she starts to surpass him and, and you know, takes on 
um, an intelligence beyond human intelligence. Right. And she's evolving mm-hmm. sort of so quickly as a consciousness that, that he can no longer keep up. Now we're getting into the spoiler stuff, the stuff yes. that I couldn't talk about in the review that I think is sort of the, the, stu- the, the, the point about just past the halfway point, I think sci-fi wise is the most interesting part of the movie when there does start to be this question of, you know, what is the future of consciousness? Maybe that didn't didn't work for either of you two guys. But. I, yeah, I actually thought that was kind of not that. Well, I, so I thought that it was interesting how um, sort of ambivalent about all that the movie was. It, it's almost as if this is a movie that takes place inside the Matrix and everyone's just like, yeah, cool. Like they're totally okay with, with everyone just getting lost in their machines and the machines kind of slowly taking over and it's not so bad for them. But in terms of just the idea that this movie would end with artificial intelligence kind of reaching the singularity and transcending us is something we've seen in a lot of other movies, you know, movies like The Matrix or Terminator. But not necessarily as a parable for actual human relationships and for where we are now. I mean, that's what I like about the sci-fi of this movie is that it's very it's very actual sci-fi, right? I mean, it's not about, for one thing, it is not dystopic, which is just refreshing, just, just visually and aesthetically refreshing that it takes place in this yeah. world that has some color and life to it and is not just a drained out mechanical universe with, yeah. you know, robots stomping through it. Um, but... But it seems also that the social satire, insofar as this movie has social satire, it's not pointed. It's very gentle, right? It loves its characters, and I think it sort of loves this this beautiful world that it creates. But there's some social satire in just exactly that that you describe. So, but so you think that represents that sort of Samantha's, you know, reaching the singularity and transcending him, and then sort of leaving represents something allegorically. I well, guess I didn't connect with that emotionally so much. So, I mean, some people have said it's co- sort of like, you know, when somebody, you grow with somebody in a relationship and then they move on. Yeah, it's an Annie Hall story, but right. it's like writ, you know, in this in this strange kind of history of consciousness, you know, format. Yeah. That's the and thing. I think, that, yeah. I think that works. I don't think it's that, it's not that interesting to me. Like if this, if you're saying this is, is a movie about a rebound, <laughs> I'm like, okay, cool. It's a pretty good one. It's pretty, pretty. It's funny. You know, and I really like it as that, but it's not the best movie in a decade as that. Right. That's the thing is that the arc of the relationship is not, I did not find it terribly interesting. In the moment while I was watching it, I thought, oh, I'm curious to see what he's going to do with this. I mean, are they going to get married? Are they going to break up? What's going to happen? And when she started to, to grow beyond him in this way, I thought, oh, that was a clever way to get out of it. But then in hindsight, I thought, well, he just kind of got out of it. He didn't, to me, he didn't really wrestle with with any of the more thorny complications that a relationship like this might entail. Instead, it became, like you said, a sort of Annie Hall story where he started to date someone, coming off a long relationship. Eventually, she grew out of him in a certain way, and she left. And the relationship happens to be a long-distance one, so they can only have phone sex. But none of that is particularly new or interesting to me. I mean, it's done reasonably well. It's not a bad... It's not... I was going to say it's not a bad movie. I'm not sure I believe that. It's, 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 not a, it's, it's not a bad, it's not badly done. Let me put it that way. But it doesn't feel new in that respect. So, David, in fact, you compare it to Annie Hall as, as somebody joked very funnily on Twitter. I wish I could call them out specifically. But it's sort of like Annie Howe. <laughs> All right. Good one, Forrest. <laughs> I'll stop you there for, for a quick word from our sponsor. The Spoiler Special has a new sponsor this week, Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILERS. 
Squarespace is constantly improving their platform with new features, new designs, and better support. They have beautiful designs to start with and all the style options you need to create a unique website for you or your business. They're very easy to use, but if you need some help, they also have an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It all starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for one year. So start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code SPOILERS to get 10% off your first purchase. The spoiler special thanks Squarespace for their support. All right, so back to her. So we've we've accompanied this couple now, more or less, to to the point where they start to come apart, which I think is the most interesting move, part of the movie, and you guys seem to find the least interesting part. So I want to hear your critique of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just sort of a cop-out. What's most interesting in the movie to me is whether Twombly or any of us would stay with her if she made us happy. And whether we would just therefore kind of give up on human connection because we were able to be happier with these devices, which also gets at like how basically selfish we are. It's also a question that's very close to our lives as 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 our lives are right now, which is to say we're constantly choosing to what extent we want to, you know, be on our phones on the subway versus talking to the Yes, and that's what makes it a good satire. I mean to me that's what makes oh, it a good satire. No, right. Is that is that its relationship to technology is not purely a critique. I think yes. a lot of people have, have written about it in that way and experienced it that way as a movie that's sort of about our our this terrible tragic disconnectedness and how dependent we are on these servile devices. And there's also been kind of a feminist reading of the movie saying, you know, this Scarlett Johansson computer that attends to his every need is in fact sort of a, a, a male fantasy projection onto you know this, this, this nothingness. I, I guess I just didn't experience it that way at all. I felt that it, it had a very complex appreciation of technology at the same time, you know, a fear about the, the power that technology holds over us now, you know, not in the near future, but oh, now. Yeah. No, I, I 100% agree with you. And I think it was that for the first, I don't know what it was, hour and a half or so. And then in the last 30 minutes, it takes that decision away from Twombly and becomes about something else entirely, which is, I guess, either the singularity on sort of a literal level or for some people, you know, the sort of moving on to lover, other lovers aspect on a figurative level. But, it, but you know, Twombly, this movie could have ended with him ultimately deciding to leave her, in, at which point he probably would have been really sad and maybe regretted it, which would have been very interesting. Or he could have stayed with her, which would have just been creepy. So you mean having this plot development that the, the, the various OSs sort of form a band and decide they're going to go off together to some virtual other space to you as a cop-out? I mean, yeah. there are things toward it the end that I think me. are a cop-out, but that's not one of them. I think it's a cop out because I just I don't I don't see how it gets at much that's interesting or original. It reminds me of that part on the Poochie episode, The Simpsons, where he's just like, "I'm sorry, I have to go now. My planet needs me," and then he leaves. And it's like, in this movie, it's like, wait, you know, we didn't ever, you know, leave us to think about the interesting questions. We- I love that the Poochie episode of The Simpsons is just this text, this master <laughs> text that we're all assumed. Of course, the Poochie episode, course, yeah, rostify I mean, it by twenty percent. Exactly. We haven't really talked much about his divorce yet, and that's another key element of the ending because he's given this uh, emotional trajectory that is happy in at least one respect mm-hmm. in that – so he, he was married, as you mentioned – and uh, they are getting divorced, but they have not signed the papers. And this because is, of his stasis, he can't yes. bring himself to sign. He can't, he can't deal with it. Um, he finally does, and I actually need to check with you guys, is it before or after they sign the papers that he sends her an email? He, you know, dictates an email. To Rooney Mara? Yes. It's at the very end of the movie. It's the last thing he does after the OS's leave and everything. So there you go. And he says that, you know, he just sent, he's sending his love out to her wherever she is. 
And in a way, even more than signing the papers, I think this is meant to suggest that, that he's moved on. He's not bitter. He's not angry. And so in a way, the relationship with Samantha has enabled him, I think, to yeah. make this journey. And I, I mean, I, I don't know. Again, that's that's uh, that's the ending of Five Hundred Days of Summer, right? I mean, it's it, it, so that's the rebound aspect of the movie that I've, I think is. I mean, I was moved by the ending of the movie. I just don't think that's the grounds on which to make the case for this movie's greatness. I think there's a little dramatic flatness to that dictating the last letter to Rooney Mara and joining Amy Adams on the roof at the end. And I don't like that Amy Adams puts her head on his shoulder. It's a tiny detail, but I wish that they were just sort of sitting there side by side, staring out at the city. There's something a little bit too happy ending and too cozy and too suggestive of, you know, the next heterosexual bond that's going to form about that. that At the end of 500 Days of Summer, he meets a girl named Autumn. It's kind of like that. <laughs> oh, God. It's nowhere near as painful as that movie. Come on. Yeah, no, oh, yeah, it's no, not I'm that not bad. saying that. But it's it's surprisingly similar in ways. I mean, I don't know. He plays the ukulele, and I, there's there's just a lot of aspects of this movie that feel very fam- familiar well, the, to all those other Manic Pixie Dream Girl right, movies. Right. There, there are a lot of ways to cre- critique this movie that um, are not essential to me, but I think are worth mentioning. I think they're forgivable things. But, yes, it it, it is very twee. There's the ukulele and... Um, Can I just stand up for the ukulele? It's a fine, time-honored Hawaiian totally, instrument. Totally. And I not, play six songs on it myself. <laughs> right, but so it's just a cliche in the movies at this point. You know, the, you know, two years after you have Ryan Gosling playing in a Blue ukulele. Valentine. And, right. Yeah, yeah. More seriously, apparently the L.A. of the near future will be entirely white and Asian, except for the one breakdancing black guy that he enjoys in a moment of reverie. Yeah, the yeah. absence the absence of any apparent racial diversity or poverty from the future is yeah. a worrisome no part class. of this movie. I think there's even kind of no gender in a way that's interesting to me, but, and, you know, maybe things are moving that direction, and I don't think that's all bad, but, you know. Right, well, there's no money, which is the, I mean, you, you mentioned it before as, as uh, sort of clever that... It's this seamless transaction that he acquires. I don't know that it's clever, but I think it's deliberate. I mean, I Richard Brody de- right. in The New Yorker, who hated this movie and wrote a hilarious takedown of it that really makes you feel like a total ninny for liking it at all. And he compares it to a feature-length kitten video, which is just a great line that I wish I'd written. But he really dislikes the fact that you don't see Scarlett Johansson get bought. You know, he right. thinks that that moment of sort of prostitution and commerce needs to be witnessed. But I think that that would make the critique of technology much more harsh than Spike Jones me- means to make it. Right, except that it, it he it's really elided. So if you look at a lot of the reviews I mean a lot of the reviews are you know they swoon not only for the movie but at least to some extent for the romance which you know we haven't mentioned Pretty Woman but you could compare that movie to this one as well because Mm -hmm. he did ultimately buy her he does own her I mean her you know if we're going to talk about this operating system, but it's as a, a failed person. ownership, right? I mean, he is not, in fact, able. to But own I don't know it. if we, if that critique is ever made. Do you know what I mean? Because you just ignore the fact that he purchased her, and I think that Jones sort of does as well. Also, I mean, yeah. So you mentioned there's no poverty. There's just there's just no financial reality at all. Even though he has a job, and Amy Adams has this job, so you know, in theory, they do have to pay for things. But it just, I felt like this movie came from a place of deep financial security. Right. Where there was never any indication that anybody struggles with these things at all. And it's, it doesn't, it's not about that. It doesn't have to be about that. But I felt like there was something essential missing from this world right. that he attempted to realize. Right. And so I mean, I, not to be ad hominem, but it is true, of course, that Spike Jones is Adam Siegel, heir to the Spiegel fortune, and has grown up in, you know, presumably complete comfort. Right. And it, it comes across. <laughs> I also, I think that's a, an important point to make. I also, do, I think, you know, that all of that, everything we just said is also true of 
just about any parable. And this movie, you know, plays more as parable to me as does most sci-fi than as like it's not supposed to be, you know, a, a movie that's all about realism or taking in every single aspect of the universe. So I think that's part of the reason that the movie is able to work and sort of pull off its trick. And that's important to realize. But I don't think it means instantly that like the movie is all phony. Right. right. I think that's what it's going for. And it is, some, a, I yeah. mean, it is clearly, it, it may not be a critique of technology, but it clearly to some degree is a critique of consumerism and late capitalism, right? I mean, I think that ad that you see for the OS is ominous. It's, it's ominous enough that we don't necessarily need a scene of Kachunk, the credit card in a register to think that there is something ominous about the transaction as well. But here's what's weird to me is that there's, for me, there was almost no, and I forget almost, there was really no distinction between that ad and the rest of the movie. The movie itself had the feel of an Apple ad, right? Yeah. I mean, it feels, I mean, the whole um, look and tone of it, rep, you know, reflected the kind of seamless, um, dirt-free, for almost the entire length of the film, dirt-free um, world that those ads try to project. Now, again, was that deliberate? I, I guess, but then there's no reality crashing up against this. I mean, where is the Which satire? is also true of a parable in which you have talking animals and stuff. But it just, uh, I mean... I guess, but the movie itself becomes an ad. I just don't know that he was entirely in control. I, Maybe that was deliberate or not. But also, and just one last point mm-hmm. before I turn it over, I thought the whole thing looked like an ad. And so I was confused by all the reviews that have said it's so beautiful, because I think it's cloying. Yeah, I mean... Visually I, cloying. Yeah. I, mean. I think that's a very interesting aspect of Spike Jones's work, you know, for so he's directed a lot of commercials, and a lot of the commercials and he's music directed videos. are sort of apparently subversive, and they seem to be spoofs of commercials. So the one that's maybe most the most like this movie is this very famous ad he did called Lamp, which is just about somebody falling. I don't know if it there's even a person that falls in love with the lamp, but there's a lamp that's like very lovingly photographed, and then there's sad music that plays, and it's slowly taken out to the curb, and then it starts raining, and you start to feel really bad for this lamp. Oh my god, it's the and precursor then, to her. Oh, totally. And then there are a couple examples, at least, of this, and and then and then this sort of funny uh, Scandinavian guy because it's an ad for Ikea comes on and is like what's wrong with you? It's just a lamp then the new one is way better and it's a very funny ad and it's A, a spoof of ads and B, also an advertisement in itself. There's another one where it's just people destroying a gap but it's a gap ad because they're talking about how they're going to come back with it. See, a, I mean, I guess maybe I'm, maybe I think I'm giving really him more credit. Him. I see. I, I like knowing that he was already thinking about those those issues when he was making an ad for a Swedish lamp. Because it does seem to me, I think there's something more sophisticated going on than just let's revel in these beautiful surfaces and you know imagine that we live in this world where we can buy these servile OSs. I feel like he's kind of folding that critique of commodity fetishism basically mm-hmm. into the universe that he creates in small ways. I mean, in the in the ways that you see you know people passing on the subway and gradually notice that they all have earpieces and something that they're talking into or the scene which i found sort of like a punch to the gut but i think apparently is 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 part of the sexless bloodlessness of the movie where she hires a sexual surrogate samantha does the os because she wants to have a body right so she finds this woman almost through like a craigslist of the future type deal you know who will come in and be her body and then there's this eerie little device that looks like a mole that she places on her face right like a little a little skin mole but it's actually a, i guess some sensory microphone that connects to I don't know what that thing is supposed to be but there's this idea of kind of you know sending sexual sensation into the ether so that so that the Scarlett Johansson character can experience it. and I thought both as sci-fi and as just sort of like a very uncomfortable sex scene that that was very powerful yeah I, th- I thought that that was one of the more interesting and clever scenes in the movie 
I, I, it is another moment where money is is elided um, because she's willing to do this for free, and um, and that's made clear. But on the other hand, I think you know, the defense for that would be that this woman so craves intimacy. Right, transactionality that, is not elided. Yeah, right? that for her, it's it's worth it just to be a part of this. Um, but I thought that the, that scene and so much of the movie, it sort of went up to the brink of real discomfort, and then it ended a little too soon. You know, I, I emotionally it made sense that he would recoil, that, that okay, this seemingly attractive prospect, I mean, she's a, a beautiful woman, and, and she's going to sleep with him with no strings attached, and Samantha will be in his ear the whole time. Um, it made sense to me that he would stop it and say, no, you're not her, and, I, and I'm uncomfortable with this. Um, but on the other hand... You know, the real carnality is sort of avoided because the scene stops so quickly. And likewise, the sex scene between uh, him and Samantha, where they have basically phone sex, um, you hear it, and you hear them breathing heavily. And it's it, it's a very striking moment because the screen goes black, and you're sitting there in a dark theater with a bunch of people listening to these sex sounds. It was a very striking scene, um, but you you didn't hear. I don't think anything that would really make you uncomfortable. And in truth, you might. If he really but, wanted to go for something kind of... I, I just think he could have done more. It's, again, it's a, it's a very... such a gentle movie. It's so delicate all the way through. And I think there are things that could have kind of pushed you a little harder. And he always pulled back. Yeah, so, yeah. But I think I can see that. Are you asking for it to be more dystopic? Because those scenes also, both, as you said, like you think that Twombly would behave that way. And certainly we've already seen him have phone sex, which is effectively what he's having the first time around. So both of those scenes felt true to me and right and I I like that the movie doesn't you know go into sort of a preachier mode it's not preachiness it's just more truth to human experience I mean he's masturbating that's what he's doing and you you don't hear it you don't see it it's just I I think that it it elides these realities by just just not showing them and so it, it and again this gets to those seductive surfaces again and this feeling that it's sort of an ad um, but isn't that black screen when they're having the phone sex what makes that scene about virtuality? It makes it about something other than something we could see in any movie set in the present, right? A guy calling a phone sex operator and masturbating. Right. right? I mean, it's not trying to sort of de-glamorize or de-romanticize or show the real sordidness. I think it's actually trying to show at that moment something that all of us experience all the time whenever we have a kind of um, virtual connection with someone, right? When we have a Twitter friend or, you know, a long-distance relationship, that this moment that you're nowhere and yet you're together. Right. But this is, I think, why the movie feels fake, because you never get the reality. I mean, you, just the whole movie is these kind of... But mm-hmm. I, There's one moment late in the, in the film where he's, he's running, and I don't even remember why, and he falls in the street, and he scuffs his shirt, and you see dirt on his shirt, and I swear it is the first dirt in the movie, which must, I must be deliberate, so I thought, oh, okay. I mean, Jones knows that he has not shown any dirt in the film up until this point, I, and so, okay, this is a deliberate decision, but, but, but why not? Why is there no dirt elsewhere and why is that the only scene where anything gets scuffed or dinged or it's just this is not this is not a world that people live in and so i understand that it's you know on some level a parable or it's sci-fi but it it just felt so divorced from human reality to me i've i agreed with you up until the last point where which is where i think that that scene is as real as anything else in the movie just in the same way i mean in the sense that you know, it is like porn or phone sex and things that happen in people's minds all the time, which is just as real as when you fall and scuff up your shirt. 
which is slightly separate from the larger point that you were making. Right. But, but there are both of those things in life. There isn't yeah. just one. And in this right. movie, it felt like there was just one. And, I, and I, I felt like something was missing there. More dirt. You want to remake it with more dirt. There's a longer director's cut somewhere, you guys were saying, right? Yeah. So Spike Jones, the original cut, I think, was uh, something like two and a half hours. And then he sent it to Steven Soderbergh, who cut it down to 90 minutes in a weekend, I guess, or in a day, in 24 hours. Um, I didn't and then, know that. Is Soderbergh credited as an editor on the movie? So, well, but he didn't... I, I don't know the answer to that question, but he definitely didn't do the final cut because I think the final movie is something like two hours. This is all from um, Mark Harris's profile of Spike Jones uh, in New York, which is totally worth reading. Um, and so they added back in some of the things that Soderbergh had cut out, you know, the, things that they couldn't part with or uh, Soderbergh had pointed in the right direction, but they still wanted to I would be very else. curious to see what all those different things are. Okay, well, yeah. we should talk a little bit. We haven't talked very much about just the moving parts of this movie, the performances, the music, the cinematography, etc. Would you guys contest that Joaquin Phoenix is superb in this role and that he holds the screen for, I mean, he has to be alone on screen with a piece of plastic in his ear for 99% of the movie. And I, I think he's incredible. Yeah, I completely agree. He's great, and it's amazing that that uh, the movie works as well as it does. I mean, like it's it's well made, and you can watch him, and that's what you're doing almost the whole time is just watching. I mean, his it's face. really a testament, even if there are things about the story that's being told or the you know the, the the parable, the critique that you don't love. It's it's pretty impressive that he holds the screen in the way that he does in that performance, especially given, as you say, that you know it's all at a, in a very muted, gentle tone. I mean, he doesn't really get any chance to do his Joaquin Phoenix, you know, busting out with big emotions kind of thing. Right, and he conveys the hurt. You get a sense that this is a man who's going through a divorce, who's lonely, but then he also expresses great joy when he's, you know, sw- swinging around with Samantha mm-hmm. in his hands on the beach. I mean, it's a hard thing to play, happiness, right? I mean, and a lot of this movie is about someone slowly discovering their own happiness. And I mean, maybe that's like a horribly twee thing to focus your movie around, but I, I th- thought he did an amazing job communicating that. I will say that I thought Scarlett Johansson was was fine. I don't quite understand... I mean, this, again, gets at sort of reacting to the reactions that people have had to the movie. I don't get the rapturous response to, to her Oh, is there one? Is there, is there a big yeah, she won an swell award of rapture for her? A lot of the reviews will say, oh, you know, she should, she should be recognized for this performance. It's amazing what she does with only her voice. I think she does it well. I think it, she's obviously a talented actor, and, and she brings this character to life. But it, I think it is easier to to do that when you don't have to appear on screen. Right. Well, we also have to mention the embedded Samantha Morton performance, which is a fascinating thing to me about this movie. I would love to interview Samantha Morton about this, but she probably is not allowed to talk about it anyway. She was initially cast as Samantha and actually did, I think, almost all of the interaction, sorry, and did, I think, almost all of the interacting with Joaquin Phoenix. So, in fact, the subjectivity that he's in conversation with in all these scenes is Samantha Morton's, except for maybe a couple scenes they shot later. And then the the Scarlett Johansson voice was laid in later. So, I mean, I just, I love the way that that has this contiguity with the themes of the movie, you know, about the slippage of identity and who are you talking to when you're talking to a voice in your ear. Yeah, apparently she even developed the character with Jones, and she's credited in some As way. As an assistant producer or something for for all the input that she gave into the but movie. But to me, it just really seems like it, it has, should be regarded as a collaborative performance almost, even if they mm-hmm. didn't, the two women didn't know they were collaborating at the time. I it's also just sort of funny how they did it. I guess she was just in this box that was kind of, it was big enough that she could stretch her feet out, but that's about it. And she just stayed in there for the majority of this of the shoot, you know, kind of delivering her lines through a speaker or a hole or something. I'm not Is that all clear. in the Mark Harris right up to? Yeah, oh, yeah. I got to read that. Yeah, I'm sad. I'm sad because I think she's amazing and she doesn't 
work as much as I would like her to personally. But um, I, I will say about the music that I did not really like it, which is another um, aspect, I think, to my visceral response that's very different from some people's. I thought mostly it was fine, but there are moments where it's leaned on very heavily. I agree. I think he overuses it. And some of it is nice music, but he, like his ex-wife, Sofia Coppola, loves his ambient cushioning music. You know, Completely. And I, sometimes I think we could do without quite so much oral cushioning. And there- probably worth bringing it I mean he so he came up as a music video director and so there are sequences that sort of begin to feel like music videos and that's natural for him I and yeah. every one of his movies has yeah. one of those right I mean to me where the wild things are was essentially three or four mm-hmm. pretty good music videos tied together with a lot of not very interesting dramatic scenes well, this the, movie succeeds far more than I think that movie and this may be my favorite Spike Jones movie yet I mean his two Charlie Kaufman ooh, collaborations whoa. powerful as they are I think Fighting are better words. I think they're better scripts than they are movies huh I mean they're great scripts so I but, just thought, yeah, I they're I tempted to say that they're both more original than this movie is, and they're both funnier. I don't know. I love both of those movies. So, and I'm a huge Charlie Kaufman fanboy. So I'm not yeah. The Charlie most. Kaufman's amazing. I do think that that this movie does not uh, for me, and uh, maybe for you guys. I'm curious. It does not divorce me from the idea that those are Charlie Coffin movies. Oh, yeah. Spike Jones does a very good job, I think, with both of them, directing them. But ultimately, there's a continuity there in the work of Charlie Kaufman. Maybe that's what it is, is that I I regard Spike Jones as more of like a collaborator or a kind of like enabler (laughs) of of the Kaufmania, you know? Just the way that nobody really ever talks about Michel Gondry as the director of Eternal Sunshine, although he's fantastic. Right. That movie Mm -hmm. very much fits in that line, and so does Snake to New York, whereas this one feels a little bit more like Where the Wild Things Are to me, which also had this kind of muted emotionalism, brooding sort of, I liked it okay, I haven't seen it in a while. But it, it was basically about sort of people feeling lonely and wanting to connect with others and, and so, which is a really odd thing to take from where the wild things are but anyway um, I, the scene in which the music I for me fell the most flat is the second time we hear a composition by Samantha because she becomes a musician at some point and first you hear her writing music while he's on the beach and I thought that was very nicely done mm-hmm. and sort of it was lovely piano music or something but then later he's sitting somewhere in the city and she is, you know, is writing this new song. And at this point, she, you know, she's sort of developed and grown more. So it's, it, it really needs, to, I think, to feel... You're right. That needs to be like Arvo Parrot or something yeah, like that, it really right? Needs it needs to, to be music that's like yeah, moving somewhere new. I think. Yeah, and instead it's just no, kind of these like... Carino. Like noodly, yeah. Yeah, it's just sort of noodly kind of trills on a keyboard. It just didn't work for me at all. And that, that was a real... A moment that I think really needed to have a lot of weight and didn't for me. All right, but by way of defending this movie one more time before you guys flee the studio, I, I think we should mention how funny it is. I think you guys would agree that, I mean, it's it's not a, a knee-slapping laugh riot that's trying to be a comedy in every scene, but there's some really sharp moments of, of, of wit, both of sort of social satire and then just of, of just plain old funny dialogue. Yeah, it's really deadpan and kind of perfectly executed, I think, all of, all of that deadpan humor. There's some stuff that goes beyond the deadpan, like you know, Kristen Wiig's dead cat fetishist or the very funny video game character who's voiced by Spike Jones and says things like, fuck you, shithead, fuck face, fuckhead. Right, like yeah. a, he's like a little homunculus who's sort of 3D, right? I mean, the, yeah. the, the video game of the future is also interestingly imagined because it's only a couple steps of where video games are at now, but it's essentially, you know, a little homunculus who stands in your living room and mocks you for playing the game badly. I think my favorite voiceover was uh, Brian Cox as the reconstructed <laughs> consciousness of the Zen philosopher Alan Watts, who becomes one of the many crushes that Samantha falls in love with toward the end when she starts, you know, going crazy and cheating on her boyfriend with six 
600 other virtual people, but that scene where they have to have a really awkward, deep phone conversation with Alan Watts, it just, just it makes me laugh every time. So, yeah, no, the, the video game scene made me laugh hysterically. There were, there were a couple moments in this movie that just cracked me up to the point of, you know, near tears. And I, it's interesting thinking about it now that both of both the Kristen Wiig scene where he's having phone sex with a stranger and it turns out she wants... To be him. strangled with a dead cat. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes along with it. It's, it's really funny. And the and the video game scene where this guy, you know, this little adorable blue man swears at him angrily uh, and with incredible profanity are, both sort of break through the gentleness of the yeah, movie in, exactly. a, in a, I'm sure, a very deliberate way and, and, and very effectively that that kind of muted, gentle tone of the rest is just, just smashed to pieces by both of those characters with, you know, comic results. I think that yeah. happens in the relationship as well, though. I mean, it's not as if it's all lovey-dovey dialogue between the two. I think it's also an important element that, you know, they make each other laugh and, and that's how they fall in love. So, I mean, whatever else you say about this movie, it is, there is pleasure in seeing it. It's not that you're dragging the entire time through the moping, brooding totally. world of Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, yeah, I would tell people to go see it. I mean, um, I enjoyed it. I just didn't love it. If only Absolutely. so that they can have 45-minute conversations with their friends about it later. It is a great discussion <laughs> movie, right? True, yeah. All right, you guys, thanks a lot for coming in to discuss her, and I hope to see you again on another spoiler special. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Dana. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.